As a high schooler, one of my favorite books was this book right here, The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Has anybody ever seen this book or read this book? Yeah. So this is how one website sells this book. Danger. It lurks at every corner. Volcanoes, sharks, quicksand, terrorists. The pilot of the plane blacks out. It's up to you to land the jet. What do you do? The worst case scenario survival handbook is here to help. Jam-packed with how-to, hands-on, step-by-step, illustrated instructions on everything you need to know. Fast. From defusing a bomb to delivering a baby in the back of a cab. Hopefully not at the same time. Providing frightening and funny real information, this indispensable, indestructible pocket-sized guide is the definitive handbook for those times when life takes a sudden turn for the worst. The essential companion for a perilous age because you never know. So recently I was shopping at Target and I saw this book and I bought it for my boys because you never know. Now, I highly doubt that by reading this book once or maybe twice that if a pilot blacks out while I'm on a plane that I'm going to know what to do or if I'm faced with defusing a bomb or I have to deliver a baby in the backseat of a cab. Who takes cabs anymore? But uh, Uber, I guess. And I'll remember what to do. I'm not entirely convinced that I will simply by reading this yellow book. But I do actually, true story, if we ever get stuck in quicksand, I do remember how to do that. So that's good news for you. Even though quicksand does not seem to be that big of a deal in our world, at least for us. But it's fun to think about these worst-case scenarios, right? But when life comes at you fast, difficulty has a way of finding you, despite what we might think it's not fun. And despite what we might think, we can't avoid difficulty. Instead, we have to go through difficulty. And so the book of James starts off with this premise. James 1, 1 through 2. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Like, how do you do that? Count it all joy when trials come? This letter is written by James. Uh, there's a lot of theories as to who James is, but it seems to be the primary, the primary one that most people believe that who he is, is James, the brother of Jesus. So it's remarkable that he refers himself as servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about your brothers, but I don't really see any of them as God and Lord. But regardless, James does. And James is uh, the apostle that oversees the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And true story, if you read the Greek, his name is not James. His name is Jacob. I'll give you a guess who changed his name into James. King James, when he did his Bible translation. So King James is not as flawless as people would like to make you believe. His real name is Jacob. So Jacob, this brother of Jesus, writes a letter, and it's a general letter. And the reason why we call it a general letter is because it's not written to a specific church like Romans or Philippians or Colossians, but it's one that would have been passed around to all Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes, who fled because of oppression from Jerusalem and are now living outside of Palestine, spread across the Roman Empire in the dispersion, he calls it. 
And James writes to them, realizing their experience as far as, Christ, as Christians go, as, as far as they've come, has brought them difficulty, right? If they weren't Christians, they would still be allowed to live in Jerusalem and they'd still be allowed to live in Palestine, but because they're Christians, they now have to go outside. They have to flee their household, and that puts them in new situations with new difficulties and new temptations. And he doesn't tell these Jewish Christians, did you notice this, to just slap on a smile and act like everything's okay. He won't tell them to see the silver lining in it all. Hey, it's good news. You know, you, get, you, got to, you had to flee your house and left all your friends behind and your job behind, and now you're living in a place that you're not used to. Hey, that's cool. New experiences, right? No, he doesn't do silver lining stuff. Instead, he invites them to see difficulty the way God sees difficulty. It's interesting that we, this is the Holy Spirit works this way sometimes, that the first song is, God, I look to you. You're where my health comes from. Give me vision to see things like you do. James is saying, see difficulty like God sees it. And when you do, you can stand firm and have joy in standing firm in the midst of it. So what I want us to understand today is that we must see difficulties in our lives the way God sees them so we can stand firm in them. You have to see difficulty the way God sees it. And God doesn't say avoid it. God said, I'm gonna, we're going to have to walk through this, that I've permitted this, that I've allowed this. But I want you to see it the way I see it. I'm trying to teach something to you. I'm trying to produce something in you. And James tells us exactly how to do that, how to stand firm. He says three things. Request wisdom, be patient, and have faith. Look at James 1, verse 3 through 4. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is saying is God uses difficulty to test your faith and produce steadfastness in you. Steadfastness is the word hippomone. There's multiple w- words that kind of get the same thing, but hippomone is the word that he's using here, which means heroic, brave patience is the person who under a siege of trials bears up and does not lose heart or courage. And so the example we have in the Bible of Hippomone is Job, who Satan, with God's permission, takes everything from. But Job remained Hippomone. James even draws this comparison later in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, Hippomone, you have heard of the steadfastness, Hippomone, of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Like Job, we're called to have heroic, brave patience, to not lose heart or courage in difficulty, because God is using your difficulty, my difficulty, to produce steadfastness in us. God never wastes your difficulty. He never wastes your suffering. He never wastes your tears. He never wastes your pain. There's never a difficulty in your life that God does not use. 
It doesn't mean you see it right now, but he's saying, I'm using it. In his sovereignty, he permits it. But in his power and his grace, he uses it. So he uses it for what? Romans 8.28 says he uses it for our good. So we might think of Joseph in Genesis who was sold into slavery because his brothers were jealous of him. And then he's thrown into prison on false charges. And many of us would give up at that point. Oh, where's God? He's not here. I'm, I'm out. Whatever. Forget this. But Joseph, by God's grace, becomes second in command in Egypt. He holds faithful to God. He holds fast to God. He stands firm. And he gets to this place where he now is second in command of all of Egypt. And what happens is, as the story progresses, his family is, just like the whole region is hit with famine, his family begins to starve because of the famine. The same brothers who sold him into slavery come to Egypt, and they find Joseph in charge, but they don't recognize him. But instead of Joseph sending them away, what Joseph does, he saves their lives. And he invites them, as he reveals himself to them, that he invites them to spend the rest of their lives in Egypt with him. And after their father dies, after Jacob dies, they were afraid, the brothers were afraid that Joseph would now take the opportunity to take vengeance, take revenge on us. But Joseph points out this in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Satan may mean, may mean evil against you. The people who hurt you may have meant evil against you. But Joseph says, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that's all well and good, right? That's all something like, hey, that's great Sunday morning stuff, Evan, but tomorrow's Monday. And my difficulty is going to be there waiting for me. So how do we stand firm? How do we be, how are we steadfast in difficulty? First, request wisdom. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We must ask God for wisdom if we're going to stand firm in difficulty. Godly wisdom, biblical wisdom, is very practical. It's very down-to-earth, and what it does is it gives us insight into God's will and ways. So wisdom, when we're asking God for it, helps us see our difficulty the way God sees it. And so when you're going through a hard time and you need insight into what he's doing, what God is doing, James says, ask God for wisdom, but don't doubt that he'll give it to you. So he says in verse 6, picking up again, but he let him ask in faith, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a, a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What James is not doing, James is not rebuking the person who occasionally doubts or goes through seasons of doubt, or falls into sin. If that was the case, nobody ever would get wisdom. Okay? He's rebuking those who aren't sincere when they ask God for wisdom. Picture this. If you're on a ship, 
right? And you're out in the middle of the ocean, and it's storming outside. And you go out on the ship, and a, the storm comes, and, it, and the winds and the waves, get, the waves get so high that they toss you overboard. What will you do in that moment? You will cry with all sincerity to the people on this ship to toss you a life preserver. And when they toss it to you, you'll hang on to it, and you're going to hang on to the life preserver for dear life. It's a sincere request because you believe this is the only thing that would save you. And so what James is saying, when the wind and the waves of difficulty come, Godly wisdom is the life preserver that keeps you from drowning. And if you truly believe that, you're going to cry out to God to toss you the life preserver. That's what he means. He's saying be sincere about it. Actually see God's wisdom, see biblical wisdom as the thing that will save you and rescue you. But if you're like me, you call out for godly wisdom, but you believe it's your wisdom and your strength that will get you out of the mess. And James says, Evan, when you do that, you're double-minded. And you shouldn't expect to get anything from God. Now, God's gracious. Sometimes he'll give you stuff even when you do it the wrong way. But we shouldn't expect it. Too many of us try to swim and tread water, hoping you'll find your way out. Sure, the wind and the waves toss you overboard, but I'll just tread water. I'll do it. I'll be able to pull myself out of here. No problem. And the question is, how long can you tread water? Think about your life right now. If you're using your wisdom and strength, how long can you do that? How long can you keep your head above water in your difficulty? How many difficulties do you believe you can think your way out of? Or you can problem solve your way out of? That might work day to day, but occasionally it just falls apart. But what about the big things? Like cancer? Or war? Or natural disaster? Or abuse? Or unexpected death? Or a spouse who wants nothing to do with you? Or a child who won't talk to you? Or what about ripple effects of past sin? See, these things are out of control. And they're, out, they're outside of your control. Because your wisdom and your strength are limited. And there's little you can do about it. So either you tread water until you're exhausted and drown in anxiety and drown in depression and drown in fear, or you cry out to God without doubting sincerely either you're going to tread water for the rest of your life and I got to be honest it's exhausting trust me I'm the guy who does it all the time and I'm exhausted or you can cry out to the people on the ship and say toss me the life preserver of godly wisdom Lord please I need it I need to see difficulty the way you see it Lord something that you're using for my good. And so for that, we need patience. So James helps to be patient. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast on the trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of glory, which God has promised to those who love him. We must have patience as we stand firm in difficulty. It's going to take time. 
In John 11, we read the story of Lazarus' resurrection. And that's the end of the story, but the beginning of the story goes something like this. One day, Jesus found out that his dear friend, whom we're told he loved, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus gets the news. And check this out. 11 verse 6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And during those two days, Lazarus died. But stop for a moment. Enter the story. Think about how ridiculous this is. Jesus, who had all the power in the world to rush to heal Lazarus, he's healed people from John 1 to 10, healed people, turned water into wine, which is like, that's the best friend to have around at the party, right? Like, he, Jesus does all this stuff. He's healing lepers, and he's healing the blind, and he's healing the lame. But when Lazarus is sick, the person he supposedly loves, what does he do? I'm going to wait two days. And then when Lazarus dies, that's when he goes. Oftentimes, God waits until things are at their darkest before he delivers you. You might not be sure why God's waiting to deliver you, but it's often at when things are their darkest, when they're their scariest, when they're their most confusing, is when God decides to show up and deliver you. And he's just asking you to be patient because he's forming something inside of you that he would not form inside of you if he didn't first take you through the difficulty. You hear me? He is forming something inside of you that he would not do. He would not form inside of you if he didn't first take you through your difficulty. Patience and difficulty gives us a greater bond and it gives us a greater blessing. And so when we look at verse 33 of John 11, listen to this. Jesus gets there, right? And he, he, he meets Martha, and then he meets Mary. And when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And jump to verse 35. What does Jesus do? He cries. One of the reasons I love my wife Amanda so much is not because strictly because of the good times that we've had together. Those were wonderful memories, but the strength of our bond was formed through the times where we cried together. When my grandfather died, we cried. When I lost my job, we cried. When my mom died, after 10 years battling cancer, we cried together. Sarah McLaughlin, in, in her book, Ten Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, which every teen and pa every parent of teen probably should pick up. But she writes this. We can laugh with anyone, but we tend to cry only with those closest to us. And the bond is strongest when their suffering matches ours because we know they really understand. See, it wasn't that Jesus didn't love Lazarus. He didn't love Martha. He didn't love Mary, so he waited. It wasn't that he didn't love them. It was because he loved them, he waited. Think about it. Think about all that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would have missed if Lazarus was delivered when they 
wanted him to be. They would have never received this stronger bond with Jesus. They would never have this bond with God the Son whose heart broke with their hearts, who wept beside them and with them. They would never know that Jesus really understands our pain if they wanted him, if they saw Lazarus delivered when they wanted it to happen. And they would never receive the blessing of having Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And because Jesus waited, we get to see that too. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect difficulty to come. But you can also expect that Jesus' heart breaks with your heart. And that will give you a stronger bond with him. But that takes time to form. And you'll receive the crown of life, James says, that comes when you breathe your last breath, the blessing of eternal life with him. You see the pain? See what Jesus identifies with you? He's drawn to you in your suffering. That's the difference between all gods, but God revealed to us in Jesus that our God is drawn to our suffering. And his heart breaks with ours. And then he says, I will carry you through this difficulty and I will carry you through life. And when you let, breathe your last breath, when this difficult life for you is over, I will also be there too. See, it's not that God doesn't love you, which is why he allows difficulty to come into your life. It's because he loves you that he does. In their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How, Every Good, Int How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, the authors Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt write that there's three great untruths we're teaching our young people. Number one, always trust your feelings. Number two, life is a battle between good people and evil people. You're the good people, they're the bad people. But the one I like to focus on is the, is the third one, which is actually the first in the book. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker, is what we're teaching young people. And they draw this image of a flame that should, that should speak to all of us. Wind will blow out a candle but it energizes a bonfire. And through research, they, they show how the, the danger of, about the danger of safetyism, they call it. They say safetyism refers to a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value. Safety trumps everything else, no matter how unlikely or trivial the potential danger. Safety trumps everything. Think about it. We do it all the time. Hey, be safe. Hey, drive safe. And applying safetyism to young people creates this feedback loop, they say. This is all based on research. Kids become more fragile and less resilient, which ends up happening is then it signals to adults that they need more protection, which makes them even more fragile and less resilient. And then so then parents, what they do, and adults, what they do is then we've got to protect them even more, and that makes them even more fragile and more resilient. What, what I bring this up, the reason just to say, is that you're a bonfire, not a candle. Your kids are bonfires, they're not candles. We often see difficulty as something to avoid, but like our immune systems, we have to go through difficulty. And God, by allowing us to go through it, he produces in us the ability to stand firm, and he grows this resilience in us. 
in difficulty, that going through small difficulties will help us handle the greater ones. Difficulty grows you and makes you stronger. You're a bonfire, not a candle. We can't avoid all difficulty, and we can't because it's not good for you. And those authors aren't Christians, and they're saying avoiding difficulty is not good for people. So you must be patient as you go through it. Because God uses what doesn't kill you to make you stronger. But if you're impatient, what happens is your immunity to difficulty won't grow, but your anxiety will, and your fear will, and your lack of resilience will, and then your obsession to control will. And like candles, the slightest breeze of difficulty will extinguish you and will become susceptible to falling into two traps, James says. Real quick, number one, wealth. James 9 through 10. James 1, 9 through 10. Let the lowly, bro- lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Real quick, as Americans, it's easy for us to fall into the trap of believing our money will solve our problems. But it can't forever. James says it will fade away. But the warning is for both the poor and the rich. Don't put your hope in money. And the other trap is temptation. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desires, then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Douglas Moo says this in his commentary in James. He says, A trial is an outward circumstance that can pose difficulties to your faith. Trials are outward circumstances that can pose difficulties to your faith. A temptation is the inner enticement to sin. God in his love has you go through difficulties. These outward things that pose difficulties to your faith, but he does not inwardly entice you to sin. So, for example, God may have given you access to the internet while your spouse is asleep. That poses a difficulty for some of you. But he didn't inwardly entice you to look at sexually explicit material online. He didn't do that. God may have placed you next to the smartest person in class for the test you didn't study for. He didn't make you not study for the test, but he put you next to the smartest person by his sovereignty God, for some reason, did that, but he didn't inwardly entice you to copy that person's answers. God may have given you a brain to find a not-so-honest, but won't get you audited move while filing your taxes. But he didn't inwardly entice you to lie on TurboTax. And when we fall into temptation of wealth, the trap of wealth or temptation, they lead to death. Yes, spiritual death but also relational death and emotional death. Like if you look at pornography, your marriage will die. You give in to cheating on your test or lying on your taxes, your integrity dies. Put your hope in money, the economy crashes, your hope dies. Here's the point, James is saying, don't rush the process of what God is doing in you. Be 
patience. And then he says, have faith. Look at verse 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Have faith that God is using your difficulty to mature you. All good gifts, like wisdom, patience, and faith, are gifts from God for the purpose of helping you get through difficulty and become more like Jesus. Kyle, Pastor Kyle pointed us to Hebrews 12 on Ash Wednesday, and we're told this in Hebrews 12. Jesus stood firm, and the same word is hippomone. He stood firm in the difficulty of the cross. He stood firm in rejection by men to rescue us from sin. And now we can look at his hippomene, his hippomone, and hippomone ourselves. We can look at him standing firm, and we can stand firm ourselves. And if we see difficulty as God sees it, we'll even see difficulty as a gift. Have faith that God is doing something in you that will make you more like Jesus. I'm not saying it's going to feel good. I'm not saying you're going to understand it. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying toss on a smile, fake it till you make it, look at the silver lining. I'm saying God is doing something in you that I can't even see, that you can't see, that your friends might not be able to see, but God is doing something in you. Have faith that he's doing what he says he's doing. We talk about, I've mentioned this quote a million times. It's the best quote on faith I've ever found by Tony Evans. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. So act like God's telling the truth. I'm using your difficulty. I'm using it. So instead of seeing difficulty as something to be avoided, we should expect it. See, you and I live in the most powerful, richest nation of all time. Our medicine, our technology, our resources, not bad things in and of themselves, but they give us a false perception that we can control our lives and we can avoid difficulty. And that's actually destroying us. That perception is destroying us. And what happens is we have become an incredibly anxious society because of it. But when we see difficulty the way God sees it, we come to expect difficulty. We'll know that he'll use it We know that we'll get this greater bond with Jesus in it, that we will be blessed with eternal life for going when we go through it, and we hold on to Jesus, and we won't grow in anxiety, but we'll grow in our ability to stand firm. So as we close, here's what I'm just challenging you to do. See things as God sees them. See your difficulty as God sees your difficulty. And that for many of us, this realization, difficulty doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. You hear me? It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. At least not always. If you're a follower of Jesus, it likely means that you're doing things right. If you're coming to expect, if Satan's attacking you, it's probably because you're doing something right. If you're beat up by life circumstances, it may be because you're doing something right. So don't let others tell you that you're doing something wrong or even tell yourself that 
that you must be doing something wrong if you're going through this difficult time. Look, examine your hearts. Ask God to reveal if there's any sin in you that would show that you're going through difficulty because of something you did. And if God's not telling you that, don't let other people tell you that it is. If God's not making it clear to you that you're going through this difficulty because of sin in your own life, if you cheat on your spouse and she leaves you, that was your fault. If you cheat on your taxes and the IRS audits you, that was your fault. And ask God to reveal those things to you. But if you're going through difficulty and life doesn't make sense right now and it's just dark and it's scary and confusing, ask God, say, God, examine my heart. Reveal if there's any sin in me. As David says in the Psalms, show me. And if God's not showing you, don't let other people try to convince you that you're doing something wrong and that's why you're going through this. I'm tired of hearing it in Christian circles. I'm absolutely tired of it. And the second thing is value eternal things over the temporary ones. Revelation 2.10, Jesus says this to the suffering churches. He says, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 21 tells us that when Jesus returns, he'll take all difficulty and it will no longer be part of our world. He'll destroy it. So we need to see difficulty is temporary, guys. It's not always going to be here. It's one day going to be destroyed. But Jesus is saying, now be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Just be faithful. Trust me. So we need to see difficulty as temporary to keep us from falling into the traps of wealth and temptation. So let's see difficulty the way God sees it. And let's ask God, ask God. Next time your time of prayer, if you're going through difficulty, ask him for wisdom. Ask him to give you patience and ask him to give you faith so that you can go through it now and whenever it might happen again. Let's pray.